Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. My most important assignment, obviously, today is to teach the story that we just talked about, Lazarus. And I want to do it in a way that I think will bless you. To me, this is next to the story of Jesus, and anything attached to Jesus is the greatest of all. Next to that, I mean, there's no other story that quite comes up to Lazarus in my mind because of the setting and the timing and all the things that are true of this this story that we're not going to talk about this morning if we were getting into the historics of it. But the most important point is this is one that really touches and scratches us where we itch. Because everybody in this room is affected by this point. In the book of Job, Job 14, 14 says, he asks the question of questions, when a man dies or a woman dies, can he live again? Now, fundamentally, we've answered that question already as Christians because we have Easter every year and we understand the meaning of that. But maybe somebody here has not gotten the meaning of that. And in fact, there are some other blessings and pieces of this that I think will kind of help us because understand the fact the Bible says that death is the last enemy for the people of God. What that means is someday, unless Jesus returns before then, you're going to die. And you can put it off, dress it up, delay it, deny it, do what you want to, but there's no avail of that. It is appointed unto every man wants to die, and then you'll face judgment, and the die part is fixed. One guy put it this way. He said, sooner or later, the reality of your mortality is going to hit you. Perhaps it'll come when the doctor gives you a bad health report, maybe when a loved one dies unexpectedly. But whatever it is, when that comes, for the first time perhaps, and I like this phrase, you will smell the first shovel of dirt on top of your grave. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? And yet the point is, it's true. Experiences of life teach us the reality of the end of it. I got to confess, when I was a kid, I didn't believe in death. I didn't. I thought I'd go live forever. Because I was young, I was healthy, I was athletic. I, did, I wasn't going to get old like those people. And that stupid thoughts like that just dominated my way. And not only that, in my lifetime as a young person, I never one time went to a funeral home, never one time went to a church funeral. 20 years. I was in the ministry when I went to my first funeral. Imagine that. And so I'd kind of been sheltered and blessed in so many ways, but it changed fast. When I got into my 20s and 30s and 40s, all of a sudden it seemed like the funeral home was a weekly event. And I heard and smelled the first shovels of dirt hit graves one after another. Sometimes I was officiating and some I was attending it as a loved one. Too many to ignore. There were some that were expected, grandparents and aunts and uncles as they age and others. We had some close calls. We had a daughter, one of our daughters, the twins, beautiful girls, both of them born healthy. But the night that they were born, that night around three o'clock in the morning, this one of the twin, for no reason, she wasn't having monitors, no, she quit breathing. Sudden infant death syndrome, that's what they suspected, they couldn't prove it. But the bottom line is she quit. 
And another baby, it just so happens, the only one that was born that entire evening, another child had just been born, and the doctor came in to visit that baby to check it out before he went home. And right next to the crib was our daughter, Jennifer, and he saw her, and he resuscitated her, and she's just fine. Wow, but it's close call, scared us to death. There were other things that happened in my life that were tragic, though. A sister that died fell and hit her head at home and died. My brother Phil, in his 40s, coming home from church, an elder in the church, a judge and so on, riding a motorcycle, going around a curve that was gravel on the road. He slid out from underneath and the next thing you know, we're having a funeral. And I could tell you many others because there are lots of them, and every one of them were taking an impact on me. I still knew what I believed about the afterlife, and every one of them, though, raised questions in my mind about why and how and all these things where God is. Then I think the one that got me the most was maybe my father-in-law, Marcy's dad, and here's why. He was already in his 60s when, when this happened, but Nelson Gay lived in Lexington. He was the living, breathing oxymoron of what it means to be a college press professor who is a believer in Christ, which so many of them are not now. He is the opposite of what the standard is, it seems, these days, and I'm glad to know there are many others that are like him. He was a Christian's Christian, sold out to Jesus, served as an elder in all the churches that he attended. He also helped to start an inner city mission in Lexington. He was an active member of the group that started the campus ministry at UK that which spread out to other state universities here. And I can go on bragging about him because all these things are true. This is who he was, a simple man. He was a farmer at heart because that was his science. He was animal science and agriculture was his area. But he was a man also who loved Jesus and his allegiance was just profound. Well, the weekend, the last week I should say of, of his life, uh, I was asked to come and, and I spoke at the church where, where he was an elder. He didn't ask me, it was the senior minister how I got there in the first place. But the bottom line was, I was spoke, spoke at three times over the weekend and also there was a prayer breakfast on Saturday morning. And the prayer breakfast happened at eight o'clock and we had the, and so on and at the end of it, I was ready to leave because we had some guys loading up the van and they said, you want to go play golf? And I said, are you kidding me? Let's go. And Nelson, I told him what I was going to do. He said, that's fine. He said, I'm getting ready to go to the, the farm and so on to do some chores and things. But he said, I just want to tell you something, Bill. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I want you to know how proud I am of you. <laughs> he had never said that kind of a personal compliment to me before. I mean, even when I said, who gives this one and Mary, the, the preacher said, and so on. He looked at me and said, I guess. <laughs> but he's proud of me. And I appreciated that, and I, I treasured that immediately in the moment. And so he got in his truck, and he drove off, and he went down I-75 towards Richmond. And these guys said, we're going to play down by Richmond. We got in the vans. We took off on I-75. We're talking and so on. Suddenly, we come up on a traffic jam. Traffic stopped. And it had been stopped for a little while, but we weren't that far behind when the event happened. In fact, it was all in the left-hand lane where an 18-wheeler, he was looking for his cell phone. He looked up, come over a rise, traffic stopped, wham, right in the back end of it. 32 cars were damaged, several people injured. One we later learned died. We got in the berm with others because they didn't need us as far as attention goes, otherwise we'd have stopped. As we're creeping by and we're looking, we can see the carnage of the twisted metal. And I said out loud with nobody in particular in mind, 
Right now, somewhere, there's a family that's getting ready to have a really bad day. And one of the guys that was in the van was affected kind of similarly. He said, hey, preacher, would you, would you pray for us right now? I said, sure. And whatever else I said, I do remember this one thing I said. I said, Lord, bless the family who'll be grieving <laughs> in a few minutes. Well, we went to the golf course and I was remembering the accident for whatever reason, just stuck in my mind. Got back to the house five hours later when I pulled up at Nelson and Jean's house. First time I'd been there, by the way, without my wife. First time ever. I pulled up to, to the house and there was a state trooper. He was first on the scene and their job was to go and to break the news to the family. And so he was at the house and been there 10 minutes. Gene was distraught in the other room. He was glad to see somebody come. I asked him what time it happened. He said 10 a.m. and I knew immediately it was the one we passed. And I said, I already know the story, sir. You can go. <laughs> you can do your duty and I'll take care of this. I'm a preacher. <laughs> I went in the room. Okay, get it together. All right, let's go. I went in the room and Gene, Gene was all alone. The rest of the family's gone. Chicago, Indianapolis, North Carolina, where my wife is. Nobody there but her in order to deal with this. And I looked at her and I, I loved her like I'd never had before. Sat down, held her hand, and I said, I said, Jean, it's going to be okay. And she said, yeah, but I can't believe he's gone. What am I going to do without Nelson? How are we going to break the news to the kids? And she had all these questions that she was popping up. And I said, look, honey, I think what we need to do first of all before I answer questions, let's just pray. So I knelt down. And I choked it out. But I clearly remember saying, thank you for bringing Nelson into my life. Thank you for loving us and forgiving Nelson of his sins and ours too. Because we know that means reunion. Thank you for the empty tomb. It reassures us of what now is true with him and others that we've given off to eternity. But Lord, right now, heaven doesn't really comfort as much. We're glad he's there. But we need you here. We need you right here, right now with this family. I think that's the sentiment that was prayed through a messenger by Mary and Martha in the story of Lazarus. You know this story, many of you do. I mean, I don't even have to tell it to you because it, if you drop your Bible on the floor, it will almost open to the story because it says so much about who Jesus is. Look at John 11, verse one. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, bad sick. He lived in Bethany, two miles from the city gates of Jerusalem, kind of a suburb with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who are very famous. There's a story about Mary and Martha that's in the, also in the scriptures. And also there's the story about what Mary's going to do. Because it says in this very verse, it says, this Mary is the same one who later, about a month later maybe, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. You know that story too, if you know the Bible. So these sisters, they were close to, they sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he told his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Stop for a second. Death glorifying God? 
I mean, they're just kind of the opposite in that death is because of sin and, and how can this be true and so on. Well, we have to look at this through Jesus and these girls' eyes. We don't know what the disease was. Everybody knew it was bad. Mary and Martha sent the messenger. They sent him to their friend Jesus. Why was he called their friend? He was their friend because when Jesus was in the vicinity, he could not stay at the nighttime in Jerusalem. Everybody in the hierarchy of the Jews were looking to kill him. So he was safe in the daytime because there was a lot of people around him. At nighttime, if they found him, he'd be a goner, which is going to happen, by the way, in just a few weeks when they arrest him and go into the crucifixion story. And that's the reason why when he would come to Jerusalem for the feast and other occasions and so on, or when he was teaching there, Jesus would then leave and he would go to Bethany almost every time and spend the night with these people. It was safe there. And he felt loved and nourished and cared for. So they got close. These are not just your ordinary Christians. These are not just people who are, I'm a friend of God. These are friends of Jesus, socially. And they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus was. They knew his, he was the Messiah and they knew what he could do. They had watched it. He'd, they'd listened to his, his sermons and they, they'd been where he worked miracles. Perhaps they were even there when he raised two other people from the dead during his ministry days and so on. And maybe they eyewitnessed these things and they had all this in their mind and so on and they knew this much. He had the power for the cure of what ailed Lazarus, their brother. So the family sent the 911 message, Jesus, your friend is sick. Get here pronto. He needs you. We need you. And we've all been there, probably. Or you will get there sooner or later if you live in this world. In a hospital room or in another situation where all of a sudden nothing makes sense and everything's upside down and somebody's life is at risk and, and doctors have done their best and there's no more hope it seems like. And now you lift your eyes to heaven. You've already prayed a little bit. Now you're praying hard. Lord Jesus, my loved one is sick. We need them. Come fast. He needs your help or she needs your help. And this is where the story gets difficult to understand. When Jesus got the message that Lazarus was sick, he didn't jump up and run to Bethany. Well, that's what we would have done, right? Not Jesus. In fact, to everyone's dismay, he stayed where he was two more days. Why the delay? Well, leave it to Jesus to explain. He said to his disciples in John 11, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Hang on to that phrase for a second. But I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus is looking at him and saying, you don't understand my parable language here, right? Because I'm not saying he's falling asleep. In fact, one of the things that some people do with a scripture like this is they have applied it to, I think, a bad doctrine that defies what the scripture teaches otherwise. That teach that when a person dies, when you bury their body, you bury their spirit. And they lay in, lay in that tomb until the day that Jesus returns and he calls the body and the spirit out at that point. And it's okay if you believe that, but I'm going to tell you what, you're missing the truth of God's word. Because the truth of God's word, as I understand it in clear terms, is that when you die, to be absent from the body is to be... And I've been there when loved ones have died. And the spirit leaves the body. And God promises all kinds of good things happen. I'll say it to the end if I got time. So it's hard to understand what's going on here, but Jesus is saying to them, look, he's asleep. He'll get better. 
And his disciples said, you know, Jesus had been speaking, it says, of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then Jesus just said, okay, dummies, listen up closely. Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. In the Gospel of John, 98 times, he says the word believe. You know why? This Gospel is written last. The other three are synoptics telling the life story of Christ. This one picks, cherry picks stories that are not in the other Gospels. And the reason why is because it's trying somehow to get you and me convinced to believe in Jesus, as if that was something that should be hard to do. And these stories are all gnawing at us and dispelling any doubts we might have because it touches where we itch. And Jesus says, so that you may believe. Now let's go to him. It's time to go. And it's hard to see how God can be glorified until you read the scripture and then you see it. A funeral is going on when he arrives in Bethany. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb four days. And by Jewish way of thinking and so on, the fourth day made it so that there's no possibility it could be that he's asleep in some coma or whatever. It's definitely that he is dead and gone. The body is decaying and you can smell it. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. This is the funeral. Not like ours. In our tradition, when somebody dies, immediately, you know, they take the funeral home will take it and the body will be embalmed almost always. And then after that, we set the date at which the funeral will happen. Three days, four days, maybe even a week later. And all the things are done and all the announcements are made and so on and we get together and maybe we go to a graveyard and we bury the body and, and all the things that are part of our tradition. Not so for them. When somebody died in that day, they already knew where they were going to bury them. And what they would do immediately is to take the dead body and wash it. Anoint it with spices, wrap it in burial cloths. Does that sound like Jesus' funeral? And carried it to its final place of rest. In this case, a tomb with a stone you'd roll over. Does that sound like Jesus' story? A lot of parallels happening here, isn't there? Well, then the friends from miles around would gather at the home for the, for the wake, a time when stories would be told and comfort would be extended. It's a way of, of just being there with people and, and bringing cheers, the memories, but also at the same time crying with them. And the wake could last literally for days and sometimes for weeks, depending. And clearly this is what is happening when Jesus arrives. He's already in the tomb for four days, and now they're having the funeral. In verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed home. Jesus was getting close, and she went out to meet him. She did not go out to greet him. She went out to meet him. And Martha was hurting. She was disappointed. She was neglected. She had a bone to pick with Jesus of sorts because she felt like he had ignored her plea and let her brother die. It didn't make sense. We're your friends. So she ran up to Jesus, and in verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, I think there's a little spite to this, my brother would not have died. And then she realized how harsh that sounded. And then she kind of backed it up a little bit. She said, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Well, she doesn't think it's possible that he can be resurrected at this point. It's too many days because when this comes up in just a couple more verses, she's going to say, but the body already stinks. It's too late. I love Martha's heart. She's expressing me and you. 
She's full of faith and frustration. I hate death. But her faith was strong. If you had been here, her frustration was strong. Why weren't you here? Maybe Martha was trying to say, Jesus, we feel neglected. <laughs> if you really cared, you could have been here. Notice Jesus was not offended. He didn't smack her down for what she just said because he understood. This is the cool thing about our God. Our God understands us. He doesn't approve of all the thoughts we have, but he understands them. And Jesus being God, he understood her. He looked inside of her heart. He understood the pain she was going through. And not only was he going with her, he was also going through it. Hebrews 4 says we don't have a high priest, that's who Jesus is, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But even in our weakest temptations and so on, just as we are, he loves us, even though we've sinned. I mean, this, this is the Lord we have who empathizes with us, the struggles we have in life. And it's the cool thought here is that Jesus is feeling her feelings. He feels mine too and yours. He didn't bother trying to defend himself, though, to Martha. Instead of answering the questions she's asking him, she had several, he did something better. He told her exactly what she needed most to hear. In one of the most tender moments in the Bible, this is so cool, Jesus gave her the greatest promise anybody ever heard. John eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha kind of had the theology of the Jews in mind here. She didn't understand the new rise again that Jesus is defining things by. She said, well, I know that, that they say, you know, he will rise again at the resurrection in the last days. She's talking theology now. And it's not something that brings relief or personal or nothing. It's something that's centuries away. We don't know. But someday at the end, there'll be a resurrection. And I guess that's, he will be raised then. She at least had that much knowledge. But she's missing the boat. Jesus is explaining the how and why to Lazarus' situation here. In, 11, in verse 25, he said to her, look, I am the resurrection and life. Get what he's saying here. He didn't say, I'm bringing resurrection and applying to the situation. He said, no, I am the resurrection. I am it. I'm the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Swallow that one. And then he said to her, do you believe? What about you? Do you believe? Repeat after me. I believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. If you believe that, you believe this. Because this is the promise of God. It's personal. I bring resurrection. I am the life. And in my presence, death is no longer death. It is something else entirely. Paul says later that death loses its sting in the face of Jesus. And the grave no longer can claim victory. Because if somebody dies, their body dies, not them. And that's the question of the hour. Do you believe? I believe it's true. Let's take the home stretch now and get this to the conclusion. Remember what happens next? It's so cool. John eleven twenty eight. 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, Jesus, is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 28. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, 
She fell at his feet, which she ought to do. Wouldn't you do that if you were in the presence of Christ? You'd fall to your, to your face and eat dirt because Jesus Christ is Lord. And she said, Lord, that's the right word. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha had said, the same disappointment. This time, it was like a double dose to Jesus. It really touched him. When he saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled by all these things. And finally, he just said, it's time, it's time, it's time. Where have you laid him? Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, come, we'll show you. And then Jesus wept. Why in the world would Jesus weep? Do you think he knows he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead? And the answer is yes, of course he is. So he knows that. So why is he weeping? He's weeping because he's feeling the pain that Lazarus had gone through in the dying process. Death is not pretty. It's a painful process and sometimes it's awful to behold it. And he's weeping for Lazarus and the suffering he had. And now he's weeping for his sisters who are grieved and they're doubting him and they're wondering about their faith and so on. And, and, and he's weeping with them and for them because he's hurting. But not for Lazarus. No, not for Lazarus. Do you remember the thief on the cross? When Jesus was dying, there was two thieves crucified on either side of him. One of them looked to him and said, Lord, this day, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, how he got that position, dying on a cross by being crucified himself, I don't know. But the cool part is it was not too late. Instead, what he said was, can I still be saved? And Jesus said, I say to you, this day you'll be with me, get the words, in paradise, not in a grave, but in paradise, which in that sense is where Jesus was going to go for a while, for three days. Paradise. And that's why this thief on the cross is the answer to the question why Jesus was weeping. He wasn't weeping for Lazarus, he was weeping for us. And all the Jews said, see how he loved them? Eh, he loved Lazarus, of course, but he wasn't weeping for him, I don't think. Jesus once more deeply was moved. He came to the tomb, verse 38. It was a cave within, with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, Martha said, by this time, there's a bad odor. See what I told you? For he has been in there for 40 days, four days. Can't change. By the way, notice when it says, take the stone away. In my mind, when I tell this story in my own brain, this is not what I would preach necessarily, but I'm telling you, whisper. I think it was the disciples that moved the, this tomb, the, the, the stone, I mean. I think they're the ones that were employed by Jesus to do this job. Because remember he said, come, I want you to do this so you'll believe in me. Because you need to get more belief than you already have if you're gonna be the leaders of the church, the apostles and so on. So he took them and he kind of had them be group therapied, involved in this. And he said, move the stone. And I think he said, Peter, James, John, get over here. Roll the stone away. Can't prove that, but it's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Take the stone away, he said. Lord, Martha said, by this time there's a bad odor. He's already been in there four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Here it comes. So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Every time I pray, you listen to me, I know. And I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said these words today on account of the people that are standing around here so that they'll believe that you sent me. In other words, I am the Messiah. This is for their faith. That's why the miracle is being worked in this, this spectacle that he's doing this close to Jerusalem and all these people waiting for the funeral gathered the crowd. They all got to see this together. And when he had seen these, said these things, then Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Every preacher that preaches this text says these same words at this point. I'm quoting them and they're quoting me. He says, Lazarus, come out or come forth. Which translated, if he had said, come forth and not said Lazarus' name, every grave on the planet Earth would have opened up because Jesus has that kind of power. But he said, Lazarus, your turn. Come out. And the man who died came out, his hands, his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in this cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And that's where the story ends. Jesus, I wish you'd give us four more verses. I want to know what happened next. Lazarus is alive. Oh, we're partying, we're slapping, we're, we're, we're hugging and kissing, and, and nobody, we're bowing to Jesus, and, and everything that's happening at this point. And maybe there was a dinner that happened after that, and Lazarus sat at the head table, and everybody's saying, Tell us, you've been there. What's it like on the other side? <laughs> and I don't know what stories that he was allowed to tell from God, but I know this much. That must have been a dinner I'd like to have been at. Why? Because I need this kind of hope, you do too. Life is full of tragedies. But if you're full of God, you'll never come up short. Never. So do you believe? That's the question. If you don't fix this thing, give Jesus your heart and change your life's direction and your eternity. Let's pray, Father. I thank you for this message that comes straight out of your book and it's so real. Because we need this kind of an event to happen to us. We need to feel it and understand it, Lord. And I just pray that this day as we walk out of this room, that will take to us the inspiration that you wanna give us. You want us to know, even if we die, we're gonna live. And the loved ones that are went on before us, Lord, by your grace and mercy, we'll see them again. And all these promises that are inherent to this, Lord, is the reason why in this service, in this people, we pray, make us stronger for you and make us infectious with other people. Let them know when they are going through these tragedies, give me your hand. Let's pray because Jesus cares. In your name we pray.